The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. But if they had found the diary, and he wrote in the diary every other day just about for six years, if they had found that, he would have been immediately killed. I mean, the Gestapo would have gotten hold of him and they would have tortured him to death. They wouldn't have let him. And the diary, of course, would have been burned. That was Scott Kellner talking about his grandfather's experiences living in Nazi Germany. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Friedrich Kellner was a mid-level German official who during the Second World War kept an extraordinary secret diary that recorded some of the terrible crimes of the Nazi regime. More than 70 years later, the diary has now been published in an English translation, edited by Friedrich's American grandson, Scott. And Scott has been speaking to our website assistant, Rachel Dinning, about this remarkable witness to the Third Reich and how he brought the diary to life. So... I thought a good place to start would be for you to tell us a bit about your family history and your relationship with your grandfather. Okay, I'll be happy to do that. My grandfather and grandmother, Friedrich and Pauline Kellner, had only one child. Um, His name was Fred. And unfortunately, while my grandfather was campaigning for the Social Democrats against the Nazi Party and against the Communist Party, His only child, his son, was becoming enamored of Adolf Hitler and that agenda and wanted to join the Hitler Youth. And a few years later, they finally convinced him when he was 19 years old to go to America instead of being drafted into the German army. 
And when he got to America, he came to New York in 1935, though he still had Nazi sympathies, he fell in love with a young Jewish woman. They got married. They had three children in the course of four years. But sadly, he got involved with the Nazi movement in New York, the German Bund, and eventually was investigated by the FBI, who kind of nudged him into the U.S. Army to prove his loyalty. And that was the end of uh, the marriage. He went overseas as a, an army private, and he and my mother were divorced after that. So you didn't actually come to meet your grandfather and your p- the paternal side of his family until much later on, is that right? Yes, when my father left, my mother placed the three children in a children's home, and we grew up there, and I dropped out of school, and when I was 17, I joined the, the Navy, and two years later, they sent me to Saudi Arabia, but there was a stopover in Germany for two days, well, I had to wait for the next plane, a flight to Arabia. I asked permission if I can go in search of my grandparents in Germany. I wasn't sure they were even alive, but I was very curious about my father and wanted to find out more about him. And I didn't get the permission, so I had to go AWOL, absent without leave. This was in 1960. I was 19 years old, and I did find them after searching through three other Laubach. There were six towns in Germany with the same name, Laubach. And we were together for four days. We had a, a wonderful reunion. I happened to have a photograph of my father in my pocket. And when I showed it to them, the first thing they did was take out their family album and show me an enlarged copy of the exact same photograph that he had sent them. It was a photo of him in New York with my sister sitting on his knee when she was an infant. And what did you expect when you first met them? I mean, you mentioned that your own father um, had Nazi beliefs. So did you assume that they might harbour the same beliefs? Well, I felt almost certain of it. I, The only thing my, my mother would say about uh, our father was that he was a Nazi bad guy. And so I assumed that uh, his father had to be too. I knew that he had worked somehow in the justice system in Germany. And so as I was preparing to find them, I was, you know, assuming he would be a Nazi. And I was kind of preparing to forgive him for any uh, crimes he may have committed. And somehow my my grandfather must have sensed uh, my holding back a bit after we met. And so that first evening that I was with them, and I stayed with them for four days, he took out his uh, his diary from a, a hiding place in the dining room cabinet, and he laid out these notebooks, there are 10 of them, thick notebooks on the table, and he pointed out the, the title, which is Mein Widerstand, and he showed me in the dictionary that it meant my opposition. And so I just instantly knew that he was not a Nazi. What does this diary, which isn't just a diary, it's a collection of um, all sorts of things, so annotated newspaper cuttings and um, es- sort of essays that he wrote. What, what do these documents tell us about the kind of man he was? Well, first and foremost, just by the fact that he, he felt he needed to become like a war reporter and uh, stay in his job and, and report 
all the bad things that were happening around him. And as he's reporting them, making comments about how nasty the Nazis were for doing these things, you knew right away that he was on the right side. And the diary is filled with, as you say, over 500 newspaper clippings. And he would then comment on each newspaper clipping, uh, showing where Joseph Goebbels and the propaganda ministry were lying to the German people and what the truth really was. Now, there's this common belief that after after the war that most ordinary Germans were unaware of the atrocities that were taking place in Nazi Germany. I mean, to what extent does your grandfather's diary dispute this idea? Well, to begin with, there's a, a passage, an entry in August of 1942 when Adolf Hitler was at the height of his power. He had conquered all of Europe. His army was still doing well in, in Russia. And my grandfather wrote that they were not going to win the war. The Allies would not let such evil people, you know, preside over the world. The Nazis were going to lose. And when they did, all the Germans who were pro-Nazi would say that they knew nothing about it, that they had never been Nazis and everything was done by the Nazis in secret. And my grandfather writes, this is in August 1942, that when the war is over and they lose and the German people are saying that, the worst problem is that Nazi types will try to return again after the war, whether it's Nazis from Germany or from any other creed that believes in a totalitarian state, and that um, he wanted to be sure that these jackals never did return. And he wanted his diary to be in that fight because he was writing the diary for future generations to know the truth about not only Hitler and his henchmen and the Nazi party, but about the German people, how they overwhelmingly approved of the Nazi agenda and how that debased German morality, the women and children as well as the men. Um, one of the things that I picked up on was he criticizes, understandably, Mein Kampf um, do you think his diary, all these years later, can be seen as an antidote to Mein Kampf? Is this something that he would have wanted it to have been seen as? Yes, in fact, in the 1920s, when my grandfather was a social democrat and campaigning against the Nazis, his father, Georg Friedrich Kellner, who was a baker, he was first to read Mein Kampf, and he brought it to his son, who was campaigning, and he told his son that... Uh, he needed to bring this diary to his rallies and show it to the people for the evil it was, and that someday maybe he would write a book himself. And so Hitler's book is called Mein Kampf, My Struggle, and my grandfather's diary is called Mein Widerstand, My Opposition. So, you, like you said, the title of the diary is My Opposition, and obviously... Friedrich was opposing the Nazi regime by writing this diary in the first place. Um, but how else did he push back against the regime? Was, was he able to be vocal in his opposition? He was, and he had to be very careful because he did get in trouble for speaking out. In the first place, he had to, he was in Mainz when he was doing his campaigning. That's where uh, he grew up and met my grandmother and they were married there. And when Hitler came to power, he had to leave Mainz because he was known as a, 
an opponent of the Nazis, and Nazis were killing their opponents after they came to power. So he moved to the small town of Laubach, about 35 miles north of Frankfurt and Mainz. And he was able to get a job as an administrator of the courthouse there. He wasn't at first known for being an anti-Nazi, but when he refused to join the Nazi party, the presiding judge at the courthouse, his boss, kept trying to get him to join the Nazi party. When he refused and when they found out that he wasn't saying Heil Hitler every morning when he went to his office to his employees, the SS began to investigate him and they put him under surveillance. And he writes in the diary how he's aware of what's happening and how he had to be a little more cautious about speaking out openly. So he confined his views after that to the diary itself. I believe um, also that he did come under investigation a couple of times. Um, in he particular, did. his his wife, the, they were looking into her family history to see if she was had any Jewish ancestry. Um, I mean, would you like to tell us about some of these instant, incidences where he, the, the family were under investigation? Yes, that actually goes back to before the war itself in 1938, during that... Uh, evening called Kristallnacht, when throughout Germany the the stormtroopers were smashing up German Jewish stores and the the German Jews uh, were being beaten up and their their houses were being destroyed. My grandmother and my grandfather tried to put a stop to it in Laubach. The head of the stormtroopers in Laubach was the high school teacher, Albert Haas. And my grandmother was put under investigation especially because she had also helped some Jews called the Heinemans who lived up the street from the courthouse. And so they were investigating to see if she had Jewish blood. And when my grandfather found out about it, he hurried to the main capital of Hessen, the Hessen state in Darmstadt, bringing with him all of Pauline, my grandmother's background history, her birth certificates of all her relatives, the baptismal papers. They were evangelical Lutherans. And he also found out that they were investigating him at the same time. So he brought with him a packet of his documents. And I have those documents. And written on top of them is, this is to prove the German ancestry of the Kilmer family. And luckily he he was able to prove it. There was no reason, of course, to, to think otherwise. He had all the documentation. So they still tried to to get them, to get my grandfather and, and grandmother. But because he was the administrator of the courthouse, and it was a regional courthouse, he was privy to all the records, all the court records and everything going on. And so he knew which Nazis in power, the mayor, included, and the Ortsgruppenleiter, the local Nazi leader, what they were doing that was wrong. And so he had this over them. So they had to be very careful about just throwing him into the Gestapo's hands. They had to find something very bad that he was doing in order to get him killed right away. They wouldn't want him to start speaking out. Now, they did interrogate him on two occasions. And I have some of the Nazi memoranda about that, and one of them says that Friedrich Kellner is a bad influence on the people of Laubach, and he should be made to disappear. It's a rather rather chilling uh, documentary 
uh, and <laughs> they didn't muster up the courage to kill him. One other aspect of this is that my grandfather was a, an infantry sergeant in the Kaiser's army in the First World War. And he had been wounded in battle. And when he was campaigning as a social democrat against the Nazis, he had to fight off some of the stormtroopers in the town. And he was very brave, very, very courageous. So during the interrogations, knowing that they didn't have anything really substantial against him, he threatened them that he would he would ask for an official trial so that in Berlin, they would have to review the results of the trial because he was a, a mid-level bureaucrat in the justice system, and that they would find out in Berlin how the local Nazis in Laubach were so petty about about bringing somebody like Friedrich Kellner to, to interrogations. And they would also find out, my grandfather said, what he knew from the records in the courthouse that he administers, they would find out about the bad things the local Nazis were doing. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When I was reading the book, there was this bit that jumped out to me where he was accused of not being nationalistic or not having that sort of pride. And he showed them all his wound on his leg from his injury from the First World War and was like, is this not... You know, it was just, it was quite a poignant moment, I, I felt. Well, you know, that, that makes me smile because it, it brings to mind when, when he was telling me all these things. Uh, now, not so much in 1960, when I was there for four days, when I first met them. I didn't know German, really. He did know some English. But later in 1968, when I went back to pick up the diaries and bring them to America, I stayed with them for over a month, and he and my grandmother spoke at uh, great length about everything that happened. And as my grandfather was explaining certain things, as, <laughs> including that particular interrogation, he actually rolled up the trouser leg <laughs> to show me his wound, you know, and he was very impassioned. You know, how he told the Nazis, you know, direct your accusation to the wound that I <laughs> fighting for the Kaiser. You know, if you're questioning my patriotism. <laughs> and uh, he was he was quite brave. What would have happened if a member of the Nazi party had found his diary? I mean, that would that have been the evidence that they that could have got rid of him? Yes. And they wouldn't even have needed that much. They just really needed to hear him speak out openly in public some way, saying something bad about Adolf Hitler or the Nazi party, where there are witnesses to that. But if they had found the diary, and he wrote in the diary every other day just about for six years, if they had found that, he would have been immediately killed. I mean, the Gestapo would have gotten hold of him, and they would have tortured him to death. They wouldn't let him live. And the diary, of course, would have been burned. Why do you think that he was so different from 
the people around him in his beliefs about the Third Reich? Um, I know that might be a bit of a tricky question. <laughs> There's no easy answer to that question, but um, what what informed his beliefs about, well, the whole war? Well, that's an interesting story in itself. I mentioned my great-grandfather, my grandfather's father, who was the baker, who gave Friedrich the copy of Mein Kampf that he had purchased and advised Friedrich to think of writing his own book to counter Adolf Hitler. Well, this baker, Friedrich's father, Georg, he had been born illegitimately in a small town in Arnstadt in, uh, to the east in Germany. And so he grew up, you know, with the stigma of being illegitimate. And he left Arnstadt to go to Mainz. And he became a baker. And he spent his life doing everything he could to have a good life, a legitimate life. And when his son was born, he named his son August Friedrich after the man who had sired him, his own father that he never knew, whose name was August Friedrich Schonert. And so when my grandfather was growing up as a boy, as a child, his father, the baker, Gayhog, instilled in him the need to, to always do the right thing, to always do the legitimate thing. And he encouraged Friedrich to go to high school and then to get into the justice system as a, a white-collar worker in the office. And that helped Georg, the baker, fulfill his own life when he saw his son doing that. And so the, the only real rule that Georg gave his son was the golden rule. And I, I said they were evangelical Lutherans, and the golden rule, of course, is from the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And whatever is right is always right, no matter what the politics are of that day, no matter what any tyrant might tell you, no matter what any propaganda minister might tell you. Whatever is right is always right. Whatever is wrong is wrong. And so for Friedrich, it was very simple. He knew that what the Nazis were doing was wrong uh, when he was campaigning against them for 12 years during the Weimar Republic. And so he was not going to change his tune to accommodate uh, anything. And so for the time that he was you know, in there in the Third Reich, uh, he received no real uh, um, promotions at work and no raises in pay or anything of that sort. Nothing tempted him to uh, break away from that. And I might add that my grandmother uh, was the same way. Whatever was right was right. And no matter what, she, she refused to, to salute and to say Heil Hitler. She did everything she could not to get herself in a situation where she ever had to say Heil Hitler. And um, so she stood alongside him and uh, being sure that, uh, you know, they never lost sight of the right morality. It must have been so difficult for them to maintain the, these morals that they had whilst trying not to get into trouble. They could even have been killed. It must have been such a, a challenge and such a difficult life, as well as all the everyday wartime troubles that were going on at the time. Yes, there, there are some diary entries that relate to that. Uh, one, for instance, when the court constable comes into the office where 
Friedrich is working. He has his office in the courthouse, and the constable doesn't want to talk to him. And Friedrich writes that this man, this former policeman, has it in for both him and for his wife, and that they have to be careful around him. And so they were always under this constant pressure. From the very early stages as well, Friedrich made these remarkably astute predictions about what lay ahead. Um, I think at one point he foresaw that the German invasion of the USSR, but he also he wrote about many things that hadn't yet happened, and quite often this came to fruition. Um, I mean, how did he form his ideas i mean did was he accessing sources of news that beyond the propaganda that everyone else might have been receiving yes he did he he had a uh, a swiss radio I, I think it's pronounced a paylard model radio and throughout the entire war years he listened to the foreign broadcasts particularly the london broadcasts in fact your network the bbc and at the end of the diary he writes that uh, he did listen for all those years to the foreign broadcasts, and that's what helped him know the truth. But he also knew just instinctively how uh, Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda, was never going to ever tell the truth. Uh, but yes, he listened to the, the broadcast. He also risked his life collecting the leaflets, some of the leaflets that were being dropped by the Allied airplanes, and he was able to get information that way as well. What what can his diary tell us about life in Germany um, during the early years for the everyday people? What kind of atmosphere are we getting in his diary entries? Well, throughout the diary, Friedrich shows us the, the German public's overwhelming approval of uh, what the Nazis wanted and the Nazi 25-point program. And... In one case, he wrote that they are intoxicated by the uh, successes in Poland. Uh, and what bothered him so much that not only were they constantly rejoicing about things like that, but while they were rejoicing, they paid no heed at all to the tales of atrocities. And, and this is Friedrich's words, the tales of atrocities of the worst kind that were buzzing in the air. In other words, just two weeks into the war, when Hitler invaded Poland, two weeks into that war, the people were intoxicated and totally ignoring what was happening, what the German army was doing, what the SS Einsatzgruppen were doing, what was happening to the civilians, to the ordinary people in Poland. They simply uh, didn't care about it. And <laughs> he writes about one of the Laubach, uh, Nazi woman leaders, a woman named Joachim, Frau Joachim, and that despite these tales of atrocities that everyone is hearing, so no one could say they didn't know, everyone's hearing about them, she comes up to Friedrich and she says, this is really a great and glorious time. And, and when Friedrich's listening to the German broadcasts of the rallies, the rallies at Nuremberg and places like that, he hears the masses screaming. Heil Hitler, Führer, you command, we'll follow you. And so it was very clear what the people in Germany thought at the time. And it didn't, it didn't seem to matter at all what nation Hitler wanted to crush next. 
I mean, the Germans were ready to follow him. There's one diary entry where um, after Friedrich went to get a haircut, he writes about how the barber told his customers, we'll surround that little island, you can guess what island he's talking about, with our ships, we'll attack them with an overwhelming supremacy of our bomber airplanes and destroy England. That was the barber in the barbershop. And then later when Russia was invaded, one of the farmers who thought nothing at all about the invasion of Russia said that uh, how wonderful it was going to be to have so much grain when we take the Ukraine. And uh, Friedrich writes, that's all they care about, these Germans. What can they take? Um, you published the diary in Germany in 2011. What was the reaction to it there? I mean, th this is quite a, a negative portrayal of, of a lot of G ordinary German people. So, um, I mean, you might expect that the reaction would be a bit negative to it because it's, you know, it's, it's critical of them. Yes, but fortunately, there is a rather large um, part of the public that wants to have the honesty about what their grandfathers and great-grandfathers and grandmothers did. They want that honesty. And the media um, is, to some extent, in that same field of wanting the truth. So there were some rather large uh, newspaper articles, lengthy newspaper articles, about the diary. And Der Spiegel magazine gave it a two-page spread and also a very positive review about here is finally the truth, here is one of the most incredible portrayals of Nazi society, the most vivid portrayals. And um, that kind of thing got Friedrich's name pretty well known throughout Germany. I was wondering if we could actually talk about the the process of bringing this diary into the public eye, because I think it's almost as interesting as the diary itself. So what, where did the idea of publishing this first come to you? When did you be first begin starting to collect all of the, the diary entries and documents together with a view to publish? In 1968, um, I went to Germany to, to get the diary. At that time, the first notebook of the diary had been stolen from uh, a relative, somebody living with uh, one of my grandmother's sisters. And so I took the uh, notebooks that were remaining to America and my grandfather, uh, he had already kept the diary in that secret compartment for 23 years. 1968 was 23 years after the end of the war. And even then he didn't want to publish it in, in Germany because there were so many names in the diary, and he felt that many of them had already been punished. A lot of the people in the diary were dead, killed in the war, or had already died. And um, he wanted to be sure, though, that the diary was safe. The rest of the diary was safe, and I brought it to America. And he told me that, you know, I should try to publish it because he had written it for future generations as a weapon of truth against any recurrence of Nazism or Nazi types, which, as I said earlier, that he knew in August 1942 that the Nazis were going to return someday. And I took it there, but I was in, I was in school. I was in undergraduate school. I was becoming a junior 
at the University of Massachusetts. And I wanted to go to graduate school. My grandfather made it clear I was going to need an education to, uh, to do all that. And so I was going to go to graduate school. That was going to take several years. Then I was going to teach so I can earn some money. And that would take time to get all that arranged, all my lessons. I wanted to have a family. So the years went by rather quickly. And, and a problem for me was that the diary was written in an old-fashioned German script called Suderman. And so you, every time I went to the diary to do some work with it, I had to relearn how to handle the Sudolin script before I can even begin. So I would have to transcribe the Sudolin script into Latin lettering, modern German script, before I can even think of translating it. So the, the job was enormous, and there were thousands of pages of additional material beside the actual diaries. There was almost a thousand pages I try to get help in transcribing the diaries into modern German, then translating it, and no one wanted to help. And uh, finally, many years later, I had managed to translate part of it, and I had it in English as well. I sent some of that information to the former president, George, George H.W. Bush, and he had been a uh, combat pilot in the Pacific. In the Second World War, he had a presidential library here in College Station, where I live, where I taught. It's on the campus of Texas A&M. And so I sent him a bunch of information from the diary and photographs of my grandparents and everything. And he immediately knew the significance of it. So in 2005, the diary was on exhibit at the George H. W. Bush Presidential Library to commemorate the 60th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. And it was a wonderful thing because there were some um, newspaper articles about it and some people in Germany, some professors in Germany heard about it and they contacted me and said that they wanted to help me finish transcribing it and to help me get it uh, published. And by golly, uh, it took another six years working with four German colleagues, but we finally did it in 2011. Do you think that the former president's help was really the turning point in, in bringing attention to the book then? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm very pleased to, to give him credit for it. Now, what he did was very simple. When he read I sent him a three-page letter, single-spaced, and it was accompanied by a dozen documents as well. When he very kindly read the letter, I'm sure one of his assistants read it first and said to him, this is something you might be interested in. What he did was he wrote on the top of the page, of the first page, after he had read everything, he said, can you go see what Dr. Kellner has here? It sounds very interesting. And he sent that to the director and curator of his presidential library and museum. Now, I believe George Bush Sr. isn't the only big name who's been linked with the diary. Um, at one time, you were, uh, you were in touch with Kirk Douglas about, about it. Um, so would you like to tell us about that and what, what he made of Friedrich's story? Well, <laughs> I, still, I still remember hearing Kirk Douglas on the telephone we, we spoke a number of times. What happened was that I managed to get uh, a wonderful four-page article 
in the Houston Chronicle about the diary. The Houston Chronicle had followed a story about something I had done to fulfill a promise to my grandmother. So they were aware of me and they came and looked at the diary and did this wonderful story. I thought, well, this is a great way to get some help, finally. Um, and I sent a copy of that Houston Chronicle feature story, a four-page story in their Sunday magazine, to Kirk Douglas. I had just read his book, uh, A Ragman's Rag Son, is I think the name of his biography, and he was talking about having found the Jewish faith all over again, which he had had as a child. And I thought, well, gosh, he's a producer, and maybe he can do a documentary film, and maybe that can help me get it published. Now, I had already contacted um, Yad Vashem and the New Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., asking them for their help, telling them that I would give them the diary, I'd give it away to them if they would only help to get it published. But neither museum would promise to publish it. They wanted the diary very badly. I received numerous letters from them afterward, but they wouldn't commit to publishing it. So I sent this to Kirk Douglas, and he, he wrote back immediately a short little note with Kirk Douglas on the, uh, the heading of the, the letterhead. And he said, I'm very interested helping you. I'm interested in doing a documentary, but tell me, were you going to place the diary? So I wrote back, I'm very excited. And uh, I told him that uh, about the museums and that if I could get this published, I wouldn't mind thinking about placing the diary somewhere. But until I got this thing published, I had to fulfill this promise to my grandfather that I would somehow bring it to the public for the future generations he wrote it for. So Kirk Douglas, I never did call him Kirk, Mr. Douglas, he, he wrote back and he said, well, I'm in contact with uh, the people at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and they want the diary. And when you give it to them, then I'll follow up and I'll think about what next to do. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, like, that's like telling someone, you know, why don't you just bring your child, you know, your six-year-old child to school and just drop them off at the front door. Don't worry about who's inside that building. Don't worry about the teachers. Don't worry about anything else. Just drop them off there. And then after we evaluate this, maybe, maybe we'll send the kid home to you. you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I wrote back, and, and this went on for five months with Mr. Douglas. And uh, he called a, a number of times. And I hated to disappoint him, but the diary would be useless in some archive, in some museum, collecting dust for only researchers to see. That's not what I want. I want the world to see this diary. That's what my grandfather wanted. That's what he expected. So he got very mad at me, Mr. Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wish I could uh, could mimic his voice a little bit. <laughs> and now, now I, I don't mean to say anything bad about him, truly. He's done some wonderful work for the United Nations. But when it came to the diary, what it was, in my opinion, is that these producers of movies and documentaries, they want control of the item so that they could direct it and produce it the way they want. They don't want the author of a book you know, to tell them how to do the movie. 
And so they buy a license to, to use the book, and then the author of the book has no say in it. So I think that was part of it, that as a producer, director, he wanted to be sure he had control, and it would be better control if it weren't in an individual's hands, you know, who had this subjective, emotional response to everything done about the diary, but put it in the institution's hands. So what happened, though, just uh, shortly afterward, uh, Mr. Douglas had a stroke, and uh, he had to cut back on his work, and the museum had already told me they were not going to publish it. So the diary would have wound up in the museum's archives. There would have been no Kirk Douglas documentary made, and the diary would never have gotten published. So after I after I turned down Kirk Douglas, you can't, you'd never believe how many times I went over it in my mind, kicking myself, thinking, did you make the right decision? After all, this is, you know, Kirk Douglas, this is a wonderful new museum in Washington, D.C., and uh, who am I to stand in the way? And so it was very difficult for me. Um, by then, I had worked for many years doing my best on my own to get this thing transcribed into modern German and then translated to some extent. And it would have been wonderful, actually, to have been freed of this burden of having to fulfill this promise. But I couldn't do that. How does it feel now, all these years later? The, you know, you've got the copies of the books in your house, the the different versions of it. Um, how does it feel? It feels very, very satisfying, very fulfilling. And more specifically, more specifically, to have the imprimatur of Cambridge University on the diary is uh, absolutely wonderful. This illustrious educational institution being now a part of this process. And um, I'm really pleased. I'm glad to hear that. Um, just a couple more questions left for you. Whilst you were transcribing the diary, you've already said that it was obviously a very long, difficult process. Um, what were some of the challenges you faced to maintain the integrity of the original the original? writings by your grandfather you know all these years later looking at it with the benefit of hindsight did that make it difficult to retain the integrity of the original work no not at all i i did use um my own literary judgments in terms of how to handle any particular sentence that my grandfather wrote but because he was so impassioned when he was writing this diary usually angry <laughs> with what he had just heard somewhere, that it was relatively easy to stay on track with this, not to impose any anything of, of my judgments from my time on his time and his judgments, and, and also because I fully agreed with what he was doing, what he was trying to do. Um, I had no difficulty whatsoever keeping to his words, his way. And one of the things that you, you've already mentioned it a couple of times, um, one of the things that your grandfather wanted was for this to sort of serve as a warning or a, a guide almost to the dangers of Nazis taking power again. So what's the significance of this today? Is, are there similarities between Friedrich's world and ours? 
there are very many of them, uh, totalitarian nations, threatening democratic nations. In those days, it was Germany and Mussolini and Japan. And you know the nations today that are threatening everybody. Um, bombing residential areas, deliberate targeting of women and children, sending children into battle. Um, the main thing, though, the main thing, that we're now in a very perilous time. This is a perilous time for the Second World War to be leaving the historical category of, is called living memory, for the last of those who fought the Nazis during the war, you know, to be dying off, to be leaving us. You know, they're going to their graves under the looming specter of what was once considered inconceivable, World War Three and Holocaust Part Two. I mean, Friedrich Kellner is offering those people who are departing, you know, who are leaving us now, they're offering them and us and our children a, a permanent and irrefutable voice that comes from within the Third Reich itself. Observations that demolish the fake histories of these revisionists and modern anti-Semites. I think we've covered just about everything that I've got on my list. Have you, is there anything else that you would like to talk about, actually, that I maybe haven't asked you? Well, there, there is something that is also um, of particular interest. Friedrich Kellner had no Jewish friends during his life, and that's not surprising because there was only like one German Jew for every 125 non-German Jews. But yet the diary shows this uh, wonderful moral character that Friedrich has as he as he focuses to some extent on the genocide of the Jews, the genocide taking place. And so the diary is noted for his early recognition that um, Jews were being killed and that the intent was to exterminate them. I think I'd mentioned that uh, two weeks after the war began, there were these uh, tales of atrocities of the worst kind, you know, going throughout uh, Germany, and everybody was ignoring them. Uh, and just a few weeks later, you see in the diary where he says Germ the Jews are being persecuted and exterminated. Um, I mean, he, he just gets right to the heart of what's happening there. And there's a diary entry where Hermann Goering has sent out uh, a list of restrictions that uh, the people in um, the bureaucracies had to follow, restrictions on Jews, uh, that Jews had no right to sick leave or they should be given no birth allowances or marriage allowances or no maternity benefits, that they Jews had to take any job that was being offered to them and they had to work separate from Germans. They couldn't be next to Germans. And in that entry, Friedrich writes this, um, why so many words? He says, uh, why not just say that the Jews are, are slaves? They're not people, they're slaves. And he says that that wouldn't be nice to say, but wouldn't it be truthful? And he says from, from this order, this Hermann Goering, he was the field marshal of the Luftwaffe, from this order breathes the spirit and essence of National Socialism. And he goes on to write that the Jews who had emigrated, who had left Germany, should thank God because the treatment of Jews who remained in Germany is cruel, relentless, and inhuman, and their fate is pitiful. 
It's very refreshing to have an account of this from so early on in the war. They, these are the, usually the kind of things that um, were written in hindsight. I think that's, the, for me, the most striking thing about the book, that this, was, this diary was, was written at the time. It's quite unique yeah. in that fact. It certainly is, and, um, and, that, and that was the real truth. And that's what Friedrich was able to discern from that little town in Laubach the real truth about what his fellow citizens were doing, the most horrible kinds of atrocities. That was Scott Kellner. My Opposition, The Diary of Friedrich Kellner, is out now in the UK and the US, published by Cambridge University Press. Well, that's about all for today, but please do rejoin us on Thursday, when we'll be sticking with our World War II theme by getting an insight into the SAS. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.